Okay, church, by a show of hands, how many of you guys braved a Black Friday sale yesterday? Anyone? Okay, I got one. I got, okay, I got two. I got two. All right, okay, three. All right, there we go. A little more honesty. Um, I don't know about you guys. I don't actually remember when uh, people started calling it Black Friday. I do remember uh, even as a teenager going out to San Diego shopping the day after Thanksgiving because we were off of school trying to get those Christmas presents out of the way. But now it's a worldwide phenomenon. Did you know that there are Black Friday sales in England where they don't even celebrate Thanksgiving? It's a worldwide phenomenon. Maybe the Internet has made it everywhere, but everybody loves a good sale. Um, The difference, though, is uh, most people now just do it online. Uh, a lot more people are just shopping online. Maybe, maybe you didn't go to a sale. Maybe you just got on your computer. Uh, now the sales start well before Thanksgiving, and they last all throughout the weekend. Everyone's trying to get it on a good sale uh, because life is expensive, right? Life is expensive. It's good to get a discount. Okay, only one. All right. Uh, the rest of you guys like to pay full price. All right. <laughs> well, today we're going to talk about a, a Black Friday sale, but maybe not the kind that you're going to enjoy. We've been studying the book of Second Kings, so I'm going to invite you to go there. And we're going to read about sale prices, but <clears throat> I just want you to hang in there. I, I, this is going to be tough. I know some of you guys are like, yeah, it's Christmas, it's Thanksgiving, we're feeling good, but today's scripture is going to be a little bit difficult, but I need you to hang in there with me. We're going to read the Word of God, even this difficult passage. And we are in 2 Kings chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, This fall here in our community, we've been studying the life of the prophet Elisha, and we've been trying to uh, receive from God counsel through the life and the ministry of the prophet Elisha, because I believe Um, God is trying to say something in particular to our church uh, through Elisha's uh, writings, through his his words, through his actions. And today we're going to pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 6. If you're there, say amen. All right, come on church. Remember, this is an audience participation zone, so you feel free to chime in, all right? So 2 Kings chapter 6. Are you there? Say amen. Amen. All right, here we go. There we go. We're going to pick up the story in verse 24. 24. If you're with us this fall, we've been covering chapter by chapter. Today we begin in verse 24, and this is how it begins. Sometime later, three words, sometime later. It's one of these uh, techniques writers have or filmmakers do where they do like a fade in, fade out, and they do like a time warp change. We don't know the distance of time between the previous verse, 23 and 24, but quite possibly it was years. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we discussed the first part of this chapter where the, the, the kingdom of uh, Syria, the neighboring kingdom, was always sort of at conflict with the Israelites, at least the northern kingdom. And, 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 and in this conflict, there were border wars, border skim- skirmishes. And in the chapter, in the first part of the chapter, uh, there was an attack made, but God miraculously delivered. You guys remember the story, right? You guys remember the story where, where, where the prophet Elisha said to his young servant, uh, you can't see it, but if God would open your eyes, if God opened his eyes, and, and the young prophet, I mean, the young prophet's assistant saw the hills were covered with chariots of fire because there are more with us than are with them. Remember, you remember the line? That's what just happened in the previous chapter. 
But if you were with us, you studied that not only uh, were the Israelites saved, but they were able to take captive, they were able to take captive this, this band of, of, of soldiers, and rather than destroy them, because they were at their mercy, they, they prepared a feast. So in verse 23, there's a party, there's a big party, and, and, and the Israelites bless their enemies and then send them on their way. And you remember, because you were with us, if you were, that as a direct result of this kind action, there was peace in the region. But you guys know how life is, right? Peace only lasts for so long. I mean, even in my household, when I don't hear stuff from the other room, I get suspicious. Anybody with me? Yeah? When I don't hear, I got three kids. So you know there's always a conflict. <laughs> uh, you know, so I'm, I'm used to hearing the noise. But when there's peace in the house, I get nervous. I get nervous. Something's about to go down. And sure enough, there was peace in the region between the, the Syrians and the Israelites, the kingdom of Aram, and the people of the northern kingdom. And it lasted for only so long because sometime later, verse 24, following with me, sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram or, or, or Syria, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. So just so we're all on the same page, the people of Israel had come up and freed from, from, from Egypt and eventually on their way to the promised land, they ended up in this area. But over time, these 12 tribes became two separate kingdoms, what the Bible will call the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. Are you following me? Okay. Just blink. Let me know you're alive. Okay, the kingdom of the north had, was composed of 10 tribes, and the capital city was the city of Samaria, a city in a region that will become very famous in the New Testament. This was the, called the northern kingdom. They had a king and, and, and a capital city. And in the south, there were two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and their, their capital was Jerusalem, a more familiar city for most of us. So we have two kingdoms. But they were all the people of Israel. By this time, they were separated into two kingdoms. And if you follow the Bible history, you know what happens here. But in this moment, Elisha's ministry is in the northern kingdom, particularly in the city of Samaria, which was the capital city. And the Bible tells us here that the neighboring king, the king of, 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 of uh, Syria and Aram, rather than just skirmishes and border wars, this time he decides, he decides to lay siege, all-out war, on the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Bible says that he took his entire army. He didn't just send a squadron, a few soldiers, a battalion. He sent his entire army and he laid siege to the city of Samaria. Now you may not be familiar with the city, but, but the way that the kingdoms would work is when they established a capital city, they wanted to protect it. It's probably you've seen in, in, uh, uh, in, in movies. In order to protect, they would erect these walls to keep the city safe inside. And the higher the, the, the walls, the higher the, the fortress, the more fortified the city was, the more important it thought of itself, more impenetrable, more safe. And so it was that the city of Samaria had these huge fortified walls. And when they closed the doors, no one could get in or out. It was a way to protect themselves. But there was a, a way to defeat these walls. It was to surround it and cut off the food supply and the water supply. And that's exactly what the king did. But he had to bring, the king of, of Syria, he had to bring his entire army and surround Samaria. And they began to choke it from the outside. Proven strategy. This was before catapults and all those other things that eventually <laughs> came to be played in, 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 in military uh, combat. 
But at this time, the Bible says that the, that the, the king came and, and laid up a siege against the city of Samaria. And as a result of the siege, verse 25, there was a great famine in the city. No food. They couldn't go out to, to, to work on their crops. No food was able to be bought or sold or traded. Eventually, they started to run out of food. And there was a great famine, verse 25. And the siege lasted so long, get this, here's sale price, that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. Now, you may not be familiar with that. Shekels would be like their, their coins. But 80 shekels would be about two pounds of silver. It's a lot of money. Two pounds of silver. And the Bible tells us that things got so bad that they were willing to buy a head of a donkey for two pounds of silver. Now, I was explaining to First Service that I'm from Bolivia. And if you're from Bolivia, you know about eating animal heads. Uh, some people do too. We don't really do it here in the States. <laughs> but if you're from South America, you know, there are some things. Well, actually, I know just down, down in Chula Vista, they do sell tacos de cabeza, right? Yeah, I know some of you guys are like, oh, yeah. I'm not sure I would say that, but okay. Uh, but in my country, uh, the very poor will eat and will, you know, will take the head and, and, and make stew and, and do other stuff with it. But, but truth be told, it's the least desirable or the cheapest part because there's not a lot of meat on that head. You got, you got to get pretty gross in there. You got to scrape things out. Some people are into that. But the Israelites were not. You guys remember, these are people that came out of Egypt, and God gave them specific dietary laws. Y'all remember that, right? And so the Israelites by this time, and any good Israelite, would never eat an unclean animal like a donkey. But things got so bad, they weren't just willing to eat the donkey. They were willing to eat the donkey's head and to pay two pounds of silver for it. You know what that means? It got so bad that only the rich could eat donkey's heads. But what did the poor eat? A donkey's head sold for 80 shekels and a quarter cab of seed pods for five shekels. Now, your version might say something different. If you read within in the margins there, you realize what they were eating, what the poor had to eat, is they were catching bird droppings. There was no food that could get in or out. The situation got so bad, but the birds would fly, eat, and they would come by, and as birds do, y'all, San Diego, you know what birds do. <laughs> And people would catch and scoop up bird droppings and sell a handful of bird droppings for five shekels or about two ounces of silver, two coins. What did the poor do with that? They made stew. They made soup. Bird dropping soup. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine buying that? Can you imagine paying silver for bird droppings? That's pretty bad. That's, that's what I call a Black Friday sale right there, right? That's more appropriately named. Uh, if, if you had to go out and buy bird droppings to make soup, and you were looking over at the rich with their donkey's head, mm, that's a Black Friday to me. That's, I think that's appropriately named. Things were really bad. The point of here is, and I told you, you just got to hang into the point that the situation got really bad. The people were doing desperate things just to survive. Meanwhile, meanwhile, if you stood up on the wall and you looked outside, you would see the entire, the entire army of, uh, of the Syrians. They were cooking. They had stew pots because they had resources on the outside. But the city was being choked. They were running out of water. And the Bible tells us, verse 26, that as the king of Israel, 
as the king of Israel, his name was Joram, was passing by the wall as he was looking at the situation. Who knows? Maybe he's encouraging the troops or maybe just, just, just being devastated by the fact that the city was under siege. The Bible tells us that as he was walking by the wall, passing on the wall, a woman from the city street called out to him and said, Help me, my lord the king. Help me, my lord the king. And the king replied, verse 27, If God can't help you, what do you want me to do? If God won't help you, what do you want me to do? See, you may not know or be familiar with this king, but let me give you a little bit of, of, of his, of his uh, family tree. His older brother had been king for just a short while, and his older brother uh, had died quickly because he had, instead of asking help from God and God's messengers, he had sought uh, help from other, other um, fortune tellers, if you will. And so he had lost his throne quickly. But, but their dad was Ahab. Ahab, husband to Jezebel. You know the Ahab from Elijah's day, the one who, who tried to kill Elijah, the, the one who brought all this calamity and all this trouble. Well, this were the, their sons. Joram was the second brother and only took the throne because his older brother died quickly. But what we know about him, if you read the rest of the story, and he was part of, of what we read in chapter 6, is that Joram only pretended to believe in God. He didn't really believe in God. He, he did a few things right, but, but secretly he held out his true heart and his true feelings. And in this moment of, 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 of trouble, of desperation, of famine and hunger, Joram is obviously very disillusioned with God altogether. So when the woman says, help me, Lord, and he says, if God won't help you because God's not helping us, what do you want me to do? Quite possibly, because he was out in public and other people were watching, he says, okay, fine, tell me what's the matter. Follow along with me. It's going to get pretty bad. Verse 28, then he asked her, what's the matter? And, and she answered, this is the woman, he says, this woman said to me, give up your son so that we may eat him today, and tomorrow we will eat my son. Now, when you read that, right? I mean, just that first reading, we're like, what? This, is, this cannot be real. But the next few words are devastating. So we cooked my son and ate him. And the next day I said to her, now give up your son, that we might eat him. But she had hidden him. Now, I know. I know what you're thinking. You're like, great, great Thanksgiving sermon, Pastor. Way to start Christmas. <laughs> but I'm struggling. Just, you know, as I read this, I said, that's, that's not possible, right? That a mother would boil up her own son and eat him. I mean, it's just, it's gross. It's disgusting. It's revolting. It's, it's inhuman. Can it actually be true? Can it actually be real? Uh, it's fascinating because she comes to ask for help, but she's not actually asking for, for food. She's asking for justice. I gave up my son. Now she is not giving up her son. What is this? It's really, really bad. And people are doing desperate things. When I read this and when we read things like this, it makes us think, okay, this has to be not, this must be symbolic. The Bible can't, this really can't be happening. Worse, why would God allow 
his own people to be eating their own kids. It doesn't make any sense. It's gross. It's disgusting, but it cannot be real. And yet, friends, and yet, what this is is a fulfillment of a prophetic warning. See, way back in Deuteronomy, when the people were leaving Egypt, this is, this is a long time before, God spoke through Moses and he said, I'm giving you a new land, but I'm also giving you warnings. You remember that? Moses says, blessings and curses. You decide. Pay close attention here. Moses says, blessings or curses is truly up to you. And God begins to speak through Moses. He says, if you follow my decrees, if you follow my commandments, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and Honey, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to give you this promise. You will be like a light on a hill, a city on a hill. I'm going to bless the world through you. But if you do not, if you stray, then woe unto you. And do you know what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 28? He says that you will boil your own children. This is centuries before. Why? Why? Would, why, why? Because when people are desperate... They do desperate things. And the Bible describes this scenario where out of hunger, people have done desperate things. As I read it, I struggle with it. I mean, I know it's disgusting just to think about it as a parent, that someone would do it or give up their son. What a, what a mind-blowing phrase, give up your son so that we may eat him. But the truth is, we're living in a time period in our history where people are still cannibalizing their own children. No, maybe they're not eating them for food. But they're still destroying their lives in many different ways. Yes, sure, across the world, children are being given up and sold into slavery, the sex trade, and many others. But right here, even in our own backyard, do you know that when there is trouble amongst adults, the people who pay the price are the kids? When there's conflict and famine, when, the, when, when, there, when there's no love and we're, we're, there's a famine of love, it is the kids who pay the price. When there's no compassion, it is the children who pay the price. It is they who get boiled at the altar of our own sins. It's not shocking anymore because it happens all the time. But even right here in our own community, here in San Diego, Spring Valley, just Paradise Hills, the other side of the road here a couple of weeks ago, young boys gunned down by their own father. When we read it, we think it's not possible. But friends, these curses, they're upon us. They're upon our communities and our city, just like them. This woman says, give up your son so that we may eat him. At this, the king, verse 30, when the king heard these words, he tore his robes, which is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be outraged. You're supposed to be upset. The Bible says that he tore his robes, and as he went along the wall, people saw that underneath his robes, he had sackcloth on his body. If you're familiar with the biblical narrative, sackcloth was a, was a, a garment of clothing made from burlap, something rough, and you were supposed to wear it on the outside to show that you were in mourning, that you were, that you were repentant, that you were sorry for the mistakes that you had done that caused these situations, that you were upset with what you had allowed to happen. But the king was wearing this kind of hidden on the inside. 
And only when he tore his royal robes did the people see he had this. And, and what this sort of tells us is that the king was trying to sort of appease God, but only in so much as nobody could really see it. He was trying to sort of like get things right with God, trying to take some responsibility, but not really, not publicly. And why I think that's important is because maybe that's similar to some of us, where we sort of want to come clean before God, but we don't really want to confess publicly. We don't want to own up publicly. We want God sort of to fix things in secret. We don't want to own up to our sins and our mistakes. Nevertheless, the king was in public, and he had to show a public display, and he does in verse 31, and he says, May God deal with me be ever so severely if the head of Elisha remains on his shoulders today. See, at this, at this moment of, of like un, unimaginable <clears throat> horror, moms eating their sons, the king is so upset. But you know where he lays the blame? Not on blessings and curses or choices that he made or as a leader where he had led his people. He puts the blame squarely on the shoulders of the prophet Elisha. He blamed him. He says, by this time, today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut his head off. May God deal with me severely if his head is not cut off by the end of this day. I find it fascinating because I think that oftentimes when there's trouble, <laughs> people blame the pastor. That's just what happens, right? That's what, <laughs> that's what happens sometimes. Or the leaders. We want to blame somebody. We want to, we want to find fault with somebody, but we don't want to accept that there were blessings and curses for our choosing. The king certainly doesn't want to own up to this. And he blames Elisha. Maybe he blames Elisha because earlier in the chapter, he let them go. Maybe he thinks if we, hadn't, if we had killed those, remember we captured them? These are not the, remember with the Jedi mind trick? If we had killed them, then maybe they would leave us alone. But Elisha made us forgive, and now look what's happened. It's, it's not an unusual train of thought. It's similar to what we do. Oftentimes, when we find ourselves in situations of trouble, we look back and we say, but didn't I do good things for God? Wasn't I at church on Saturday? And look what happened. We, we do the math, but we do it in such a way that doesn't take responsibility for our own choices. And he's upset and he blames Elisha. Meanwhile, verse 32, Elisha sitting in his own house. He's sitting with the elders. They're probably discussing and thinking and praying about God's plans. And the king sent the messenger. And before the messenger arrived, Elisha says, don't you see he's sending someone to cut off my head. So when he comes, don't let him in. And while he was still talking, the messenger came down but Elisha said, don't worry, the king will be right behind him to check to see if his orders had come to pass. And while the king was still, I mean, while, while Elisha was talking to them, messenger came, and then the king shows up, verse 33, please read with me. And the king speaks, and he says, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And what he does here in this moment, he proposes a way of seeing the world and seeing life that is all too familiar to us. This is God's fault. Why should I believe in him any longer? Now, here's why I think this is an important question in this season. And why 
we're talking about it here at the beginning of our Christmas season. Because I think it's an important question that we ask and wrestle with. See, I don't know about you guys, but as I've been saying, 2019 has been a, a tough year for my family personally. Maybe it has been for you. Maybe you understand. Maybe like me, you've gone through some ups and downs, but it feels like there were many more downs than ups. Maybe like me, you've lost important people in your life. Maybe like me, some dreams have come crashing down. Maybe things didn't work out. And maybe like me, you're thinking a little bit about the entire decade because, you know, I told you, you guys realize the decade's over in, in about a month. And you're looking back, and, and though God has been faithful, oftentimes it's hard to remember that. It's more easier to focus on all the negative things, the things that didn't work out, the people that left us, how much we don't have, the moments of disillusionment. And when we do that, we are tempted and, 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 and moved like him to say, this is all God's fault. Why should I believe in him any longer? Is that where you are today? See, Christmas season is, is both a blessing and, and for many, it, it, it feels like a curse. For many of us, Christmas brings up a time of mourning and sadness. Maybe it's the first Christmas without someone that we lost this year. It, it's, it's, a, it's a time where people take stock and oftentimes they zero in on their pain or, or their loneliness. It's supposed to be a time of joy, and people are out there celebrating, but, but it doesn't feel like that for everyone. And I think it's because some of us are asking this question, should I believe in God any longer? Given everything that's happened to me, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I trust him anymore? I think that's one option. I think we can, and many have. They just said, forget it. I'm tired of waiting. This is all God's fault. So I should just quit. Stop coming to church. Stop singing. Stop praising. Stop believing. Just whatever. Just take matters into my own hands. The king was saying, why should I wait? I should just take this into my own hands and do whatever I want to do. Make an allegiance. Do something. Forget God. Let me just do this on my own. That's one option. But what I think the king doesn't understand is the reason he's here is because he has been taking matters into his own hands. Back in Deuteronomy, God said, your choice, blessings or curses. See, friends, I know that not everything that you're going through is a direct result of your choice. I know that. But there are many things that are, and we've got to be honest with that. A lot of the hurt and pain that we're suffering is at our own doing. It's out of our own choices, our own lack of effort, our own unwillingness to forgive, our willingness, unwillingness to trust God with all of our resources. It's easier to blame him than to take ownership for the choices of the past decade. So you have to choose. Are you going to blame him? Are you going to curse God and die, as they would say in Job? Are you just going to quit? Are you going to throw in the towel? Or are you going to continue to believe even though you are under siege? That's the choice. Either give up hope and just 
just forget it all, or even though we're under siege, still believe that there is a God who delivers. That's the choice. At the beginning of this Christmas season, listen, that's the choice we have to make. Either this is all a hoax and Christmas is just a fairy tale, a commercial event, or there is a God who sent his son to be born among us, to live and to die for us, and he resurrected, and yes, he's coming back. Two choices, blessings or curses, it's up to you. The choices there in the middle of these moments of siege, you have to choose. The king says, forget it, I'm done. Why should I wait? Why should I trust? Why should I keep praying for an answer I've never gotten? Why should I keep hoping and believing? But Elisha responds, verse 1, chapter 7, hear now the word of the Lord. Hear now the word of the Lord. And I want to say it to you too. Hear now the word of God. This is what God says about this time tomorrow. <laughs> I just love that phrase. See, friends, sometimes, sometimes we have to get to the end of ourselves before God can finally deliver. You see, in that, in that promise of Deuteronomy, this is what God says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He says, he, prophes he prophesies this. If you don't follow me, he says, you're going to be under siege. For these words, he says, there will be nations that lay siege to you until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. Sometimes the siege is so that we can finally stop trusting in our own efforts and abilities. Sometimes God allows these things to happen so that we can finally come face to face with the fact that we cannot save ourselves, that we must trust him and our walls got to come down. Elisha says, about this time tomorrow, a sack of the finest flour will sell for just one shekel, one coin. And a big bag of barley for just one coin, about this time tomorrow. See, all along, while you're under siege, God is preparing an answer. Listen, family. All along, while you're in this moment of, of doubts and confusion and pain and hurt, God is preparing a deliverance about this time tomorrow. But you've got to hang in there. You've got to hang in there. Elijah says, about this time tomorrow, everything's going to change. A bag of the finest flour, a bag of, of barley will just shell for one, one coin. And with the king, this is, this is critical, verse 2, with the king was a, a, a man, like, a, like an assistant, a personal assistant who was with the king. And this officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, look, I love that, look. It may not be the first, but it's one of the first recorded events of mansplaining. Where he's like, okay, look here. <laughs> uh, he's like, let me make this clear for you, look. Even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven... This cannot happen. It's impossible. These were officers in the nation of God who didn't believe that God could do things. Even if God should open the floodgates of heaven, this is not possible. Maybe you have somebody in, like, in your life like that who says, look, I know you've been praying, but God can't fix that. 
I know, I know, but there's no way God can restore your marriage. I know, I know, but there's no way God can heal your kid. I know, I know, but there's no way you're going to get out of this mess. Even God can't help you. You know what Elisha says? (laughs) He says, you will see it with your own eyes. Whoa, what a statement. You're going to see it with your own eyes. What an amazing statement. Elisha says, not only is it going to happen, you're going to see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. See, friends, faith is believing something before it comes to pass, not after. And I know you want to see it with your own eyes, but you've got to see it with the eyes of faith before you see it with your physical eyes. So I'm asking you, as we begin this Christmas season, do you believe? Do you believe? Is there still a God? Did he send his son, or is this just a story, a children's ploy to sell more toys? Is it about Santa Claus, or is there truth to the story of Emmanuel, God with us? Even if you're under siege, do you believe he's sending his son again? Do you believe? See, I think this is important for us and why I'm preaching about it today, because we have to make a decision. The man says here, it is not possible. God can't help you. God can't do these things. But the prophet says, nothing is impossible for God. Whose side are you on? As we begin this Christmas season and we close out our year, close out our decade, and we're on the horizon of a new decade, 2020, will you believe That God can make things happen then, even if you've been praying for the last decade. Do you think it's possible that God might be sending a deliverance your way for the things that you've been under siege for? Maybe this Christmas season, you got to let the walls come down. And finally, just turn it all over to God. Bring your burlap on the outside where the sackcloth and ashes, and let's come repentant before God accepting his deliverance it has nothing to do with us we cannot do it we cannot make it happen we can only believe we can only hope so that's the question i have for you do you believe do you believe that he came do you believe that he was born among us and are you hiding that belief tucked away neatly while you shop with the masses now, friends, I believe that if we're under siege, now is the time to claim victory. Before God has delivered, now is the time to claim victory. And we do that by stepping in faith and proclaiming the name of Jesus. Friends, it's a good time to be a Christian. We can sing unembarrassed and unashamed, and you can proclaim Christ wherever you go. You just say, Merry Christmas. You tell them, I don't know, but I believe. I'm in a mess right now, but I know God's got an answer. About this time tomorrow, it's coming. It's on its way. God will deliver. He's going to bless my son. He's going to bring my marriage back together. God will deliver. Do you believe? I believe. And I believe the year 2020 is a year we can see it with our own eyes. But only if we trust God today. Right here. Right now. So that's my invitation to you. Let's see it with our own eyes, the eyes of our faith first. 
and God will deliver. I'm confident in that. Let's stand together and sing a song of praise to the one and only worthy God.